Hello and welcome to Series 5 of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Today I want to talk about a collection of poetry, a book that I have here in my hand, which is of immense significance to me personally. I've spoken before on the podcast about some of my early poetry experiences, reading Lawrence Ferlinghetti's poem in School Assembly and all that. But this is a collection of poetry in which I, for the first time, I would say, in poetry, I found myself. And I always think that uh, you look for some of yourself in in a poem, some connection between you and the speaker. And I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm not trying to do a cliffhanger on this. This is a book called The Mersey Sound. It's part of a, a series which I've celebrated before on these podcasts, Penguin Modern Poets. And this was published in 1967, though for me, I would say I probably found it in 71. I actually bought it with my own money, age 14, the first poetry book I think I ever bought in my life. And as I say, there was so much of my own life. There's fish and chip shops and bus rides and the Beatles and comic books, things that all were very much part of my universe and things that would become important to me, like the beat poets and paintings and T.S. Eliot and, um, well, sex, Um, you know. So it's three poets, all Liverpool poets, Adrian Henry, Roger McGough and Brian Patton, and they are gathered together in this collection, The Mersey Sound. And honestly, it would not be too much to say that this book changed my life. I didn't think poetry could be like this. And I have to say, I didn't read this book for a long time. I've only recently picked it up again because I felt, I really felt, an emotional and moral urge to tell you about it. I was worried, like when you go back to anything that meant a lot to you a long time ago, that it might not work for me anymore, and I would have found that a bit painful. I remember the second time I watched the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which I had loved first time, and I just thought, what? What did I like about this? Happily, that did not happen on my return to the Mersey Poets. So I'm just going to, I want to get as much bits and dabs of the book. I want you to get a feeling of the whole book, because the book itself, the collection, is important. It's three poets, but they almost speak as one. And they speak as the 1960s and that period. They speak as Liverpool. They speak as working class Britain, and they speak as, I think, alternative society of artists and poets and people who are challenging the tyranny of the past. So they're questioning everything. Okay, I'm going to start with a poem by Adrian Henry, and it's called Without You. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. 
it's what I would call a template poem in that every line in it begins without you. And it's a bit like a slightly better known poem by Adrian Henry called Love Is, Love Is dot dot dot, which I've never worked out whether the slightly cheesy comic strip Love Is was stolen from this or this was inspired by it. I'm really hoping this came first. But anyway, love is, just to give you a, a taste of what I mean by the template, the repetition of a, of a phrase. Love is feeling cold in the back of vans. Love is a fan club with only two fans. Love is walking, holding paint-stained hands. Love is. And there you are, just like, just those lines. You're in the back of, cold in the back of vans. That, it, it's fabulously British and walking, holding paint-stained hands. The artist is there and it's the combination of the working classness of those coal vans and the artist. We are getting that voice of working class art, which was really starting to rise up in the 60s. I'm going to read you some of the without you's from without you. Without you, every morning would be like going back to work after a holiday. That's the first line. And as similes go, if you want to know what it would feel like to really miss someone who you love, going back to work after a holiday, that feeling that something special has ended now and you're going back from the collar to the grey... I think that expresses a, a deep melancholy and also assumes a dislike of work, which um, I think was fairly common at the time. And then a couple of the, the next two lines. Without you, I couldn't stand the smell of the East Lanks Road. Without you, ghost ferries would cross the Mersey manned by skeleton crews. And I, I, the sense of place in this. These are, as I said, the book is called The Mersey Sound, but they are constantly giving you Liverpool in this book. They, they want to be placed there. It has a phenomenally strong sense of place about it. This one, I think, says also a great deal about relationships. Without you, I'd probably feel happy and have more money and time and nothing to do with it. And one of the things that used to really nag me about love and relationships was that you would sit and watch telly all night or just walk and stuff like that. And I spent the last 35 years in relationships thinking, well, I could be writing jokes now instead of just, you know, hanging out. But I think in the end, it's a deal that you agree to enter into. I'm just going to rattle off a few more and then we'll talk about some other poems. Without you, I'd have to leave my stillborn poems on other people's doorsteps wrapped in brown paper. Now, everything was wrapped in brown paper in the 60s, but I love the way they talk about being writers and about being poets. They're unashamed and upfront about it at a time when I still thought that was a slightly woo thing to be. And I think they get that from the beat poets from, from Ginsberg and from just the beat writers in general, Burroughs and 
Kerouac, who are very, very upfront and proud and talk a lot about being writers. That's my front door, but you don't have to worry about that. Listen to this for working class love. Without you, plastic flowers in shop windows would just be plastic flowers in shop windows. I think that sounds... Maybe that sounds trite to you. To me, it sounds how being in love switches the light on for everything. It, it, it sort of gives everything a glow, everything a specialness, even plastic flowers in shop windows. I'm going to try and... I don't want to dwell on this because I've got a lot more to tell you. But without you, white birds would wrench themselves free from my paintings and fly off dripping blood into the night. Again, I am an artist and I'm proud of it and I'm going to talk about it right next to talking about plastic flowers in shop windows and the East Lanks Road. To me, they're all mixed up together. I don't separate art and life in any way, this is the, what I think the speaker is telling us. And I think that sounds like Allen Ginsberg to me. White birds would wrench themselves free from my paintings and fly off dripping blood into the night. Like I said, there's quite a bit of um, the beat poets kicking around in this. William S. Burroughs is quoted in an earlier Adrian Henry poem, Adrian Henry's Last Will and Testament, quoted... No one owns life, but anyone who can pick up a frying pan owns death. And also there are cut-up poems. That is a William S. Burroughs technique of cutting things up and then putting them into new forms. So, for example, Adrian Henry does a cut-up poem in the book which is a mix of a John Milton sonnet, the TV Times, and a CND leaflet. And you literally cut up all the separate sentences and then just drop them and see what forms are new. So that's the beat influence. I need to move faster. Without you, Clark Kent would forget how to become Superman. Now, that meant a lot to me when I read this age 14 because I was obsessed with... DC and Marvel comics at a time when no one who was grown up seemed to know what DC and Marvel was. Hard to imagine now, I know, but this was sort of pre the movies. And the fact that Superman and Clark Kent were being talked about really meant a lot. I mean, I think he's saying that without you, all transformations, all change for the better would fall away. But the fact that the analogy is Clark Kent and and Superman was very special to me. And that takes me to another poem that I'm just going to flick across to on page 97. I'm literally flicking through the book. I mean, just the sound effect's fantastic. Brian Patton, later in the book, writes a poem, Where Are You Now, Batman? And... It's about when all your heroes seem to be disappearing. Where are you now, Batman? No, there aren't. Harriet has reported Robin missing and Superman's fallen asleep in the sixpenny childhood seats. And it goes on about Zorro killed by his own sword and even Flash Gordon's lost. He wanders among the stars 
weeping over the woman he loved. And this poem, which I've now, where are you now, Batman, I always make a thing on this that I don't write poetry and I don't and I don't and I promise you I never will. But I did for a very brief period in my early teens because of this book. I was inspired by this where are you now Batman and the idea that your heroes don't turn out to be quite what you expect when you grow up and experience real life. And I wrote a poem. I'm going to quote some of my own poetry, but only what I remember, which is, you can, because I don't own any of this trash anymore. So I did one about Elvis Presley films, which I thought was similar to Batman comics, in that they present a life that is impossible to attain in reality. And my poem went, I'll get you for this Elvis Presley. I'll get you for all of those lies. Where are the women you promised me? Where are those sing-along guys? And it was, you know, I was lonely for female company. But also, when I sang, there was no backing vocals. And I think that makes such a difference. I'm, actually, I'm going to do... I wrote, a, again from this book, I wrote a poem about a woman who starts a, a national movement by becoming a very good swimmer and it began I, I like the syntax I mean I don't get me wrong I, I am not a poet and I, I say I promise never to do it again and I'll never mention it again but because it was inspired directly by this book I just want to tell you about it now and it began like this and this I say I like the syntax and Mary said that she would swim Olympic and gold medal win and I think, you know, for a 14-year-old, that was okay. So anyway, just to round off without you, just three very, very 60s things, I would say, which make me smile now. Without you, there'd be no colour in magic colouring books. And again, the, the literal truth of that is there was these books that were just like black and white pictures. And if you put water on them, colour, I mean, pretty wispy, nasty, pale colour would rise from the page and it was very exciting and they were magic, but it was it was very working class magic. And But it, if, if that colour hadn't come up, it would have been the desperate disappointment and the world without colour that being left without your loved one would mean. Without you, they'd forget to put the salt in every packet of crisps. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. I think they reintroduced it a few years ago. But crisps didn't come ready salted. They, they just came. And there was a little blue twisted bag of salt. I would say it was one of the few examples in the 60s of working class choice in that you didn't have to have the salt. If you didn't want to, you could leave it in its in its blue wrapper. And the last without you, that I'm going to read at least, without you it would be an offence punishable by a fine of up to £200 or two months imprisonment to be found in possession of curry powder. Now that sounds quite comical, but the way I remember the 60s growing up in the West Midlands, there was a feeling that if you made curry in your house, you were somehow encouraging immigration, which a great many grown-ups thought was a bad thing. That's what I think he's saying there. I could, I could be imposing my ownness on that. But I remember that resistance to foreign culture 
entering. That was Adrian Henry. I'm going to go on to Roger McGough. Now, I said before that I think these guys were really challenging the tyranny of the past, the idea that they were, they were thinking new things and they were very keen to point that out. And interestingly, I think war poetry and maybe attitudes to the war, the Great War, World War II, is a very generational thing. And um, Roger McGough wrote a different kind of memorial poem, if you like, and it's called On Picnics. And you'll recognise the first three lines, or you'll half recognise them. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, I try to remember them. Now, there is a poem called For the Fallen, a 1914 poem by Lawrence Binion, which gets read at Remembrance Sunday services. And it is at the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. But with Roger McGough, at the going down of the sun and in the morning, I try to remember them. So it's, it's the, the idea that sort of glory style view of the war is already been slightly undermined. I can't quite remember who these guys were. I'm going to give you the whole thing and you'll see it's, it's a mixture of horror. I mean, it's called On Picnics, but it's about war. It's about the anonymity of the fallen and those who die and, and what physically and really happens to them, which is sometimes made more grand, perhaps, by memorials. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, I try to remember them, but their names are ordinary names and their causes are thigh bones tugged excitedly from the soil by French children on picnics. But their names are ordinary names because they are ordinary guys. We shouldn't make them gods. These are ordinary guys like that bloke down the road who died and their thigh bones are still in the soil in France and they contrast horribly with a lovely sunny picnic day and school children, etc. So it feels like a comic poem, but it really, once you get into it it absolutely is not that i think it's about how we see war it's very anti-war without hammering that home perhaps i'm going to look at a um, I'm, I'm as ever on this i'm worried about time but i'm going to look at a roger mcgough poem called cafe portraits which i really like and it really sounds like the speaker is just sitting in a cafe looking at people on various tables and pulling them apart um, with compassion, obviously. It begins with a with rhyme. A lonely lady with perfumed hair is eating primly and with care, lest she should drop a bean onto her clean, suitable skirt and ruin the illusion of sophistication. So it begins with a rhyme, I think. A lonely lady with perfumed hair is eating primly and with care because... She's being formal. She's thinking about what she looks like. She's trying to emanate a sense of order and neatness. And so rhyme kind of works there. A lonely lady with perfumed hair is eating primly and with care. But then 
we, we see that fall away. And one thing these poets love is anything that sort of undermines that false properness, which was still common amongst, I'm going to say it again, grown-ups. And when I say grown-ups, I mean it in the biggest sense, the mature, the those people who are trying to be perhaps more than they are. So, eat some premium with care, lest you should drop a bean onto a clean, suitable skirt and ruin the illusion of sophistication. Well, I think we know from what he's saying, there is no real illusion of sophistication, but she feels that there is. And has there ever been a less appealing garment description than a clean, suitable skirt? It seems to have humanity drained from it. Next table. A pair of pensioners nibble at their cups of tea. Their mouths say old-fashioned things, for their minds are many miles ago. One twirling the sugar bowl with bony fingers, the other drawing daydreams in the spilt milk. Well, I think it's a fabulous portrait of an old couple. A pair of pensioners nibble at their cups of tea, making them last. You know that thing we don't, we can't afford to come in, but we want to be here for a couple of hours, get warm, something to do, get out the house. We'll just make it last that cup of tea. Their mouths saying old-fashioned things. The young poet looking at old people, and you can imagine him thinking that, their mouths saying old-fashioned things, for their minds are many miles ago. Now, I don't know if he means that they've lost some portion of their minds or that they just live in the past. But this ending, one twirling the sugar bowl with bony fingers, the other drawing daydreams in the spilt milk. And spilt milk famously is something we shouldn't cry over. But the idea of daydreams, things that didn't happen maybe, or things that don't happen anymore, lost for this couple. I just want to do another couple of tables, there are more. A thin man with a pubic smile, eating herring rose with neat copper plate movements, Dreams of choristers on toast. And this again is the sort of the false front. A thin man with a pubic smile. Now, because of what we'd heard of the, of the, the lady at the beginning who eats primlium with care, it feels because we're talking about a public front and the personal inner truth, like that should be public smile. But it feels like the misprint, if you like, which I know it isn't one really, but the seeming misprint is how the truth gets out because this man has, seems to have some deep, dark sexual urges. I also think he's probably got a moustache and that's why he has a pubic smile. A thin man with a pubic smile eating herring rose with neat copper plate movements. Now, copper plate, as you know, is a sort of formal, stylish writing. And his movements are like that. He's, he's, he's writing himself publicly, if you like, making him seem very stylized and very sophisticated. But 
with neat copper plate movements, dreams of choristers on toast. And it's it's the, the old 60s cliche of men liking choir boys or, you know, some men. And on toast, I think, because he's eating herring rose on toast and he's thinking of choristers and it's all getting all mixed up together and the poem sort of spirals out of control and the last stanza the words start to run into each other it's it goes a bit finnegan's wake at the end i'm just going to blast it out two portly menopausing women with varicose marbled legs and danish pastries speak just so ideas agreeably and long for pre-sanitary days when they sucked pigs eggs and played ollies in the knocker-oppered barefooted tripe and fish caked streets and a lot of those words long for and pre-sanitary and just so are all they're joined together the language we start to get past the proper surface and into the interiors of these people in the cafe okay and now to brian Patton, who is the, the third poet in the book and i've chosen this poem in particular because even though i hadn't read this book for oh man i mean it might be 15 years before i dared to go back to it and was happily surprised by its continuing radiance there were a few lines that I just remembered, they just stuck with me. And in this first stanza of Brian Patton's party piece is one of those lines. I'll share the others with you. See if you can work out why they stuck. I can't really. So party piece. He said, let's stay here. Now this place has emptied and make gentle pornography with one another while the party-goers go out and the dawn creeps in like a stranger. That's the first stanza. And the line that has stopped with me, well, it's 50 years, is to make gentle pornography with one another. And I know pornography is a very frowned-upon thing, but this gentle pornography, I think, means sex that's unhampered by shyness or convention and has tremendous trust and no boundaries and is not tied down by prudery or primness but because it's gentle pornography it also has no exploitation or rage or the things that one associates with pornography pornography ungentle pornography we might call it i'm just going to quickly tell i'm just going to quickly flick because that was one of the lines that stopped with me make gentle pornography with one another another one was from a roger mcgough poem called let me die a young man's death and he talks about ways that he'd like to die when i'm 73 and in constant good tumor and they love upon these guys, and of course I love them for that. May I be mown down at dawn by a bright red sports car on my way home from an all-night party. And that really stopped with me. What a way to go. At 73, on your way back from an all-night party, hit by a bright red sports car. It seems to have all the glamour and 
glory of a spectacular ending. And one other one that stuck with me is um, going back to Adrian Henry. And there is a poem called The New Hour Times. And it's like little news items written by Adrian Henry. At the inquest on Paul McCartney, aged 21, described as a popular singer and guitarist, PC Smith said in evidence that he saw one of the accused, Miss Jones, standing waving blood-stained hands, shouting, I got a bit of his liver. And it's obviously a reference to when they used to get mobbed to the Beatles by screaming girls, and I got a bit of his liver, as for some reason really stuck with me. And uh, I haven't been mobbed many times in my life, but when I have, I have thought of that line. Let's go back to Party Piece and let's look at it as a poem rather than an aide de memoir. He said, let's stay here now this place is emptied and make gentle pornography with one another while the party goers go out and the dawn creeps in like a stranger. So you can see it's called Party Piece because it's about a party or the aftermath of a party and everyone's going, the party goers go out and the dawn creeps in, light is coming in to the party. Always a bit scary when, as a party person, you've become a creature of the night, but here it comes. It creeps in like a stranger because they have been so in this party night world, I think. Let us not hesitate over what we know or over how cold this place has become. But let's unclip our minds and let tumble free the mad mangled crocodiles of love. Okay, let us not hesitate over what we know. So let's not let reason and implications and what happens next get into this moment, this moment. Everyone's going, we're on our own. This is our moment. So let's not hesitate over what we know or over how cold this place has become. So the party goers have gone. It's become physically cold probably because of all that body heat, but they will create their own. This is a, I love this bit, but let's unclip our minds and let tumble free the mad mangled crocodiles of love. Now, obviously, you, what unclipping is going to be probably a bra or in the 60s, a brassiere, and you let that tumble free. So it's got that sort of cheesy uh, Mills and Boone type writing to it. But of course, it's only used so it can take us to a place of intense poetry. But let's unclip our minds and let tumble free the mad mangled crocodiles of love. And that gives us an image of what these two are going to become. Snarling, writhing, animalistic, scary, passionate lovers. This is love with teeth and claws. Unrestrained love. Last stanza. So they did. Right there among the woodbines and guinea stains. And later he caught a bus and she a train. And all there was between them then was rain. Okay, so it goes into that rhyme at the end. So they did right there among the woodbines and guinea stains. And later he caught a bus and she a train. 
and all there was between them then was rain. Woodbines were uh, cigarettes, and they, there's a lot of brand names in um, the Mersey sound. It's got that, I suppose, Warhol would have been operating in America at the same time, doing his um, Campbell soup cans and his soap powder and all that. And it's suddenly this popular culture embraces these brand names and puts them in poetry right there amongst the Woodbines and Guinness stains. And then a sort of, for all its modernness at the time, it's got that age-old separation of the couple. And later he caught a bus and she a train. They're not on the same form of transport even, not, nor on the same trajectory the train's heading forward and the, the bus in its staccato stopping. And all there was between them then was rain. And rain, of course, is the age-old separating melancholy thing in writing. In fact, I'm going to end this podcast by just going to another Brian Patton poem called After Breakfast, just because I don't want you to think this is just comedy the Mercy Sound Collection. There's a lot more to it than that, which I hope you've you've got, although there is some very funny stuff in it. Uh, actually, I'm just going to give you a very quick bit of comedy. This is from Adrian Henry's section. Morning poem. I've just about reached breaking point, he snapped. I like it. I really like it. And what about this? This is fabulously 60s. Song for a beautiful girl, petrol pump attendant on the motorway. I wanted your soft verges, but you gave me the hard shoulder. But although there is poetry like that, there is also poetry like this. This is Brian Patton looking at where he lives, the street, the area, looking at homes, family homes, bedsits with single people in them, and it's morning time. I'm just going to read this without analysis, and then I'm going to let you go. But honestly, if you can check out Penguin Modern Poets number 10, Adrian Henry, Roger McGough, Brian Patton, who together formed the Mersey Sound. I can only tell you that it was, it was, a, it sold loads. It wasn't just me. It really, I think it changed British poetry, certainly. This is the end of After Breakfast by Brian Patton. Like I say, it's morning and he's looking at all these windows and doors and imagining the life behind them. Whole families waking, a thousand negligees. I mean, if that isn't the 60s, what is negligee? One of my favourite words. Whole families waking, a thousand negligees, pyjamas, nightgowns, all wandering down to breakfast. How secure. Isn't that the young working class poet looking at family life and thinking, how secure, but it's not what I want. It's not real. Anyway, how secure. And others coming out the far end of dawn, having only pain and drizzle for breakfast, waking always to be greeted with the poor feast of daylight. So these now are the, the lonely people contrasting to the, the family. How many half-lives sulking behind these windows, from basement to attic, Complaining and asking, who will inherit me today? Who will I share breakfast with? 
and always the same answer coming back. The rain will inherit you, lonely breakfaster. That was the Mercy Sound. Check it out. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.